Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is a bright and sunny morning out there, ladies and gentlemen, and the world is beginning to return to the common sense view of things. As we knew it would, you could be forgiven for thinking that the world in recent weeks has actually gone stark staring bonkers mad. When people start asking whether chess is racist, whether the countryside is for white people only, and when Formula One teams declare that they are painting their cars black in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, you know that tokenism and virtue signalling has reached its peak. Because after all, that ain't going to make a halfpenny's worth of difference to the world of equality. Last night, however, the landscape looked very different. And we have Sir Keir Starmer to thank for it. That's right, I'm going to be thanking Sir Keir Starmer for doing something good. The leader of the Labour Party was very firm when he came out and declared that he could not and never would support an organisation whose aims included defunding the police. As a former Attorney General, he said that was an untenable position for the leader of the opposition to hold. And so I applaud him for coming out and saying that so strongly, saying it so uh, very deliberately, and by upsetting some of the people inside the Labour Party, I take my hat off to him. His statement followed the Black Lives Matter official Twitter account tweeting out about standing with Palestine and the illegal occupation of its lands by Israel, an issue which seemed to anyone sensible was clearly beyond the remit of racial equality in the United Kingdom. And as a result, the Premier League, which had previously ordained that all footballers should have Black Lives Matter emblazoned on their backs for every single game, also signalled a retreat by distancing themselves from the organisation while continuing to support their cause. For the BLM anarchists and crypto-communists, the game is up. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll hear from podcaster and journalist Johnny Gould, who has been calling for the football business to show a little backbone all week. 0344 499 1000. That's not all, of course, because coming up later, we've got several treats in store. TV presenter and historian Neil Oliver joins us with his take on why apprenticeships are better than higher education for all of us. And Times columnist and author Matthew Syed will be here to give us his view of where we are now. He's particularly interested in why uh, the taking down of statues 
does not, in fact, equal equality at all. Plus, it's Prime Minister's questions in the company of Charlotte Ivers, our political correspondent, uh, where Boris Johnson and Sir Keir Starmer will go head-to-head, no doubt, uh, on the subject of the New Deal, of the investment that Boris Johnson announced yesterday of the five billion quid that he wants to spend uh, to bring this country back to where he believes it should be. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here uh, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It can only be Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So isn't it quite remarkable that when you think about it, uh, the Premier League, which went hell for leather as soon as they possibly could uh, to get all sorts of people to take the knee, to take all sorts of action uh, inside and outside of the game of football to make sure that everybody knew that they were standing shoulder to shoulder uh, with Black Lives Matter. The only problem, and part of this problem was exacerbated by my interview, I'd have to say, with Gary McFarlane uh, a couple of weeks ago, somebody who is involved in the organisation of Black Lives Matter. So this was a guy who came on to talk radio uh, very willingly, was given lots and lots of airtime, was given lots of time to answer the questions that I put to him. One of which was, of course, are you proud to be British? Uh, he said he was not. He said that he was an internationalist. I asked him if he wanted to defund the police. He said not only did he want to defund the police, but he wanted to do away with the police. When I said to him, how would that work with the drug gangs of this country and of the inner cities of this country? He said, well, there would not be any more drug gangs because they would basically privatise the drug business and that somehow private companies would deal drugs totally legally uh, where people would be able to buy them uh, with uh, quite happily from places like Boots, uh, from places like pharmacies. He wanted to defund uh, not only the whole business of the drug gangs, but he also wanted to somehow break down capitalism so that there was no more capitalism. And at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, did organisations like the Premier League go too far, too fast? Did they jump to the wrong conclusion? Keir Starmer, uh, who was earlier pictured taking a knee with Angela Rayner, as Julie Hartley Brewer says, maybe he should have been a bit more careful. Maybe he should have been a bit more clever about how he reacted to Black Lives Matter in the first place. However, the problem, in my eyes, uh, is that a lot of people were kind of, shall we say, hypnotised by what was going on. The murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis was entirely shocking, entirely awful uh, and entirely unjustified. There will be people standing trial for that murder and I dare say those people will be probably given a fair trial but probably convicted. I can say that here because I have no influence over a trial uh, in America, in the United States, uh, particularly in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. But what I would say uh, is that there is not one person in this country who does not think that that was an unjustifiable homicide, as they call it in the States. There is not one person in this country who believes that black people should not be equal with white people and that there should be equal opportunity for all. There is not one person uh, who does not understand that some black people do face discrimination. However, what we do not need uh, is a series of of organisations like the Premier League, a very influential body, taking sides politically in things which they do not understand. Let us talk now uh, to Johnny Gould, who's a podcaster, um, a journalist of long standing, a businessman, a man who's done a great many things in his life, but a man who also, like me, was calling out the Premier League and football business for quite some time before they made this reverse ferret. Johnny, very good morning to you. Mike, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, thank you for your support. It's like uh, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. I just want my football back. I'm not even making a political statement here. I'm just sick and tired of the idea of culture wars being fought uh, within football so clumsily. Richard Masters almost threw away 140 years of 
you know, traditional apolitical pastime by saying it seemed like a good idea without doing any due diligence on Black Lives Matter. He, he, he could have looked through their Twitter feed. He could have searched it online and over and above the name itself. That's all this research he did. And, and the bottom line for me, Johnny, as well, is why on earth is the Premier League finding itself in this difficult position? Why do they need to actually make a political statement at all? Because many people ra raised the subject of the poppy and how FIFA had banned any uh, national uh, uh, football team from this country putting a poppy on their shirts for, a, for an international tournament. You know, why suddenly is Black Lives Matter more important than the poppy? Um. Well, you know, this is the problem. I mean, the, the poppy comes from a time before identity politics when, you know, we were a sort of slightly more unified society. And it now has come to a point where, unfortunately, uh, some footballers feel within their own heritage that they, they can't wear it. And now, you know, because of this confusion that's come from this, we, we may have to accept that. And that is a real tragedy. You know, football should be apolitical. One of the reasons why the English game, and, and I say that with a capital E and a capital G, spread around the world so much is because of the values that it's syndicated within itself of personal achievement, team achievement, and later on, professional achievement. It doesn't need these extra things um, sort of added to it, culture war ideas. And I'll tell you something else as well. Um, I'm getting um, a bit of um, pushback from... BLM supporters, Aston Villa fans, because I'm a director of the Supporters Trust. And, you know, thank goodness there are no crowds at games at the moment because there would be the potential for dissent and disorder. Crowd chants, very big ones from certain football clubs who are very much against this, probably a lot of people. Uh, we saw the, you know, the, the, the Burnley um, aeroplane above Manchester City. Uh, I think that's the thin end of the wedge. And also the idea where there was peace and harmony with people. I know I go to games with uh, supporters of other parties, supporters of other people. But, you know, we're all Aston Villa fans together. And if I can't feel safe at a game, then that's entirely the fault of the Premier League and Sky Sports. They have made conflict where there was peace. I can't imagine a bigger mistake uh, in, the, in the history of, of English football, which for 150 years was a vessel of peace. We go to other countries, like, I don't know, uh, where there are traditional army teams you know, where, where they had to change the name. I'm thinking of Red Star Belgrade has changed its name to something like Kravenish Devdeva. I can't exactly do the pronunciation. Um, there are union teams and, you know, right-wing teams and peace teams uh, in other countries. There's obviously the sectarian issue in Glasgow, which has uh, denied Rangers and Celtic a place in the Premier League for uh, as long as the Premier League's ever existed. And so, uh, for this reason... Excuse me, just going to shut the door... Listen, you seem to have some uncontrollable children there, Johnny. I may have to send up the uh, Independent Republic Parental uh, Alienation Squad in order to get them to behave. But interesting that you say all that. The other thing that, that seems to me to have been the catalyst for, for common sense prevailing here, and I think it's important to note that common sense is beginning to prevail, was the rather ludicrous um, tweet that was put out by the UK uh, organisation of Black Lives Matter the other day, uh, in which they proposed and, and sort of uh, came out in favour of the Palestinians and started attacking Israel for occupying their land. Yeah, I mean, once you start um, diluting the idea, I think we can all agree that Black Lives Matter, perhaps with a ball, a bit, a small B and a small L and a small M. Yeah. But when there's mission creep um, and they're taking sides 
uh, in a conflict, what has that got to do with, you know, the, the, the push for uh, fighting and combating racism and uh, the idea of, you know, making Israel some sort of colonial um, oppressor when most Jews who live in Israel might be regarded, and I hate doing this because I'm not going to, I don't really want to play their game, but they're brown, you know, they're not white. It's, uh, it, you know, and then you start getting into arguments about anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I don't really want to do that here. All I really want to say is that I just want my football back and I want to live in peace with fellow Villa supporters, fellow Brummies, who I may know don't agree with me on anything politically, but what we all want to see is us stay up at the end of the season. And that's really what football in this country is about and why it's been such a, a successful world game for 150 years, part of Britain's soft power. And this soppy generation who are running the game want us to give up the only soft power we really have in this country, which is our Hollywood. Yeah. It's our Premier League. You know, we, we, you know, we're so proud of our game around the world. There are dissenters. Obviously, we, we talk about maybe too much money in the game, that there's only four or five clubs that can ever win anything. If you look at the semi-final of the FA Cup, you'll see what I mean, as well as the... Uh, the top four in the Premier League. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it, it's a source of great pride. Our players are world famous. Our teams are world famous. And uh, long may that continue. But we must not bring culture wars into our beautiful game because yeah. it will precipitate the end of it. No, of course. And this is the problem, I think, that football has had over the course of time. I mean, I've found myself asking the question, why on earth do we have so many minutes silence whenever there's a reason, apparently, to have a minute's silence. And it's a kind of, you talk about mission creep. You know, in lots of football games that I've been to recently, uh, and in lots of football games that we've watched on the TV, you know, they're all standing with their heads bowed in the centre circle for some reason or other. Now, some of it might be quite worthy, but an awful lot of it is simply just trying to do the right thing. You know, why don't you just come out on the football pitch and play football? Precisely. And we're seeing at Sky Sports, all the presenters and even the pundits uh, where a succession of badges that makes them look like Harry Hill or the Crankids. Yeah, yeah. You know, pre prefect, health service. Yeah. Uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, prostate cancer. Yeah. Uh, and then you have this sort of, you know, look. Oh, hang on, I've forgotten my ribbon for, you know, HIV. You know, it's ridiculous. It's totally mad. And where did we get so crazy? You know, first of all, take the badges off because it's bad for the tailoring. Yeah. And, and secondly, as I say, we have mission creep, we have inflation badge inflation and if they want to stop looking like harry hill you know those sort of <laughs> anal people are prefect motorhead right public image limited right we all had the badges when we were 15 we're all in our 50s now come on it's ridiculous and matt letizia came out even gary lineker came out and said i'm not going to retweet this right. they could have done the the most minuscule of du dual diligence sorry due diligence yeah on, on BLM and seen what they were. We have Kick It Out. We have an organization expressly fighting racism in football. Why were they passed? I've just spent four or five years uh, up till December 2019 in the election and a great deal of pressure fighting, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's um, Labour Party and their anti-Semitism. You know, it's, it's a very, very unpleasant thing to be sort of othered and, you know, for for um, the Premier League to create um, division where there wasn't any. That's the beauty of football. Right. Joe, I'll tell you something else we miss now. I'll tell you something else we miss now. We miss the Wimbledon Championships. And I'll tell you why. Not just because, of course, it's the greatest tennis tournament in the world. But they wouldn't have a bar of this. They don't even allow 
um, their players to wear anything that's not sort of white yeah. in their clothes. They they stand by their values. And why is the All England Lawn and Tennis and Croquet Championships the most wonderful in the world? Because it has values that people like and aspire to. It's not colonial. It's not racist. It's Wimbledon. And it's yeah. been with us for 150 years. And they wouldn't have a bar of this. Also, you know, but also, Johnny, as I said in, in, in my intro uh, before you and I spoke, you know, the idea that Mercedes are going to drive around a black car is <laughs> not going to make any difference to somebody living in inner city Birmingham who's finding it difficult to get a job uh, because he's being discriminated against. What the hell does he care whether Lewis Hamilton drives in a car that's white or black uh, or uh, that looks like some sort of, uh, you know, haberdashery scenario? Who cares what colour the car is? One of the unsaid miseries, I think, for people who truly want to fight racism, like me and like you, Mike, is that this is an establishment stitcher. This is the most establishment thing that you could do, support BLM, which means nothing will change. It means that whatever hierarchy these people are alleging uh, exists in the world is actually backing your um, establishment, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and bringing you into it. So what kind of solution is that? It's 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 the opposite of counterculture. It's presented as counterculture, but I think it's the most, uh, you know, unbrave, uncourageous thing you do, to do to actually do the salute. The most courageous thing you could do is to say, look, you know, I support Black Lives Matter with a small B and a small L and a small M, but I'm not going to do some kind of salute that comes fresh from the 1930s. Yes, and also given what we've seen this week, Johnny, I would expect there to be something of a, um, shall we say, um, a possible kind of demonstration by some footballers very soon. Somebody will say, actually, you know what? I don't think I want to take the knee today. I don't think we all need to do that every single game. Uh, they've already taken Black Lives Matter off the back of the shirts. I was watching uh, the FA Cup game last night between Manchester United and Brighton, and they had it on their sleeve, which is fine. It's much more discreet. It's much, you know, it's still there, uh, but it's not in your face. It's not making, you know, this massive politically correct point, And it's perfectly acceptable, I would say. And maybe in time, they'll take that off as well. But this whole kind of, you know, obsession with everybody having to take the knee, whether they like it or not, because I'm sure quite a lot of people would be quite happy not to, um, is nonsense, isn't it? It's scary. You know, uh, the authoritarian idea that we have to uh, perform something or with some kind of heretic, this pursuit of perfection, moving to a newer, higher conscious level of society is scary indeed. I thought we lived in a democracy. I thought the Conservatives won by 80 seats in December 2019. There's power and there's influence. And it's about time, in order to bring the country together, our government says something about this and stops pitting me, who is a man of peace. You know, I, I, I just want to support Aston Villa. I want to make... A I mean, that's punishment enough, Johnny, gesture. for heaven's sake, isn't it? What's that? Sorry, Mike? It's punishment enough that you have to support Aston Villa. I mean, you can't have to take any more. Exactly. Exactly. If we were so powerful, we'd win every game, wouldn't we? <laughs> um, well, yes. um, so, so listen, it but, seems, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad to see you um, happy about this. I'm very happy to see that the world would appear to be sort of returning to some semblance of, of common sense and normality. Um, and I always predicted that this would be how it would end, because the problem with radical anarchists and the problem with communists and the problem with people who want to tear down the system is that when they do get a little bit of popularity, they're not really sure, very sure what to do with it. And they always screw it up. That's right. And we have a history in this country, a very proud 
industrial history. You know, you might ask why Glasgow is so sectarian with its football, but Liverpool isn't. Okay. Mm. Now, you might look at those two cities and think, well, they're comparable in some ways, but they have a very different social history. And you can see it in the football today. Evertonians are, you know, different religions. It's just about family. Sometimes families, you know, they love each other, but one's Liverpool and one's Everton for whatever sort of crazy reason that, that, that they have a Merseyside. But the key thing was that there was um, a union leader um, on Liverpool docks in the 20s by the name of John Mann, coincidentally. Oh, yeah. Uh, to uh, that of, of Lord John Mann, a, a fighter against anti-Semitism, who observed that, you know, some of the Protestants were getting more favourable jobs than the Catholics on the docks, but unified everyone together and said, we're all part of the same sort of working class. And that 100-year-ago bit of social history in Merseyside was explained in Ricky Tomlinson's Who Do You Think You Are?, which I always thought was fascinating. And I think it's the kernel of why peace has broken out in Merseyside and that, you know, that city is not sectarian like Glasgow is with Celtic and Rangers. No, it's absolutely right. Listen, Johnny, great to talk to you. Thanks uh, for coming on. Good to see you as well uh, on our YouTube channel, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been in conversation with Neil Oliver at this time uh, on a Wednesday. And I, for one, can say that I've very much enjoyed his thoughts and his uh, philosophy. Uh, let's say a very good morning to him right now. Neil, hello. Welcome back. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on again. No, not at all. Not at all. We have much to do and much to say. I was intrigued by one of your tweets earlier on this week about the whole business of trade and, and training and why young people... And you said this once before when you were on, um, that if you want to learn about history, don't bother going to university, buy a book. Um, tell us about why you think that, uh, um, that, that learning a trade is the way forward. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm... I'm I'm part a product of the, the university system in Scotland, and uh, you know, university degrees are valuable. Uh, but when it comes to getting into work, uh, there are there are many many ways of getting into work, uh, and university is not going to get someone into work. It's not going to work for uh, every person. It's not even going to work for the majority of people. Uh, and work is so important. You know, I think it's it's one of those four letter words that it's, it's so complicated for many people in their thinking, but it makes us better people. It's part of becoming a useful person. You know, I'm always saying to our kids, we say to our kids, be useful. It's, it's the most important contribution and it's the simplest contribution anyone can make. US President Teddy Roosevelt said, by far and away the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. And work makes us better people. And it's important to get people into work. And for a lot of people, uh, their intelligence, their innate talents that, that need to be brought out are, are are physical, they're in their hands, and, and they're in the way that they physically operate. You know, our intelligence is not just limited to our brains and our heads, it's distributed throughout our bodies. And some people uh, express what they have to give uh, through the making and doing of things. And so we, we've encouraged, you know, getting on for 50% of, of school leaders to go to university, you know, which I, which I think is a bit much. And I think it would be far more beneficial to many people to to raise the status of and the importance of proper full-time apprenticeships of the sort that we used to have. Uh, you know, it's, we know that it was fundamental to the building of communities and the maintenance of communities. You, know, you look at 
somewhere like Motherwell, which lived around Ravenscraig, you know, the, the steel plant there. And thousands of people were pulled into it like oxygen into a fire. And they were they were given lives. They were given uh, creative and meaningful lives by all of that. My mum worked in a shipyard in the, in the Clyde, uh, you know, back in the back in the fifties. Uh, and those those yards held communities together. And people from the from the men working in the draft rooms, creating the plans, down onto the onto the dockside where these things were cut and built and welded and riveted and created. And the whole community around the shipyards would would be uh, in, enlivened and emboldened by seeing these great cliffs of steel, these man-forged edifices rise above the tenements. And everyone knew that they had a stake in it and that the, it was part of, and it was, it was the lifeblood of their entire community. And people were confident that when their kids left school, so many of them could go in and find creative, valuable, meaningful employment in these places. And, you know, the globalization that we've had around the world in the last few decades, and clearly it has delivered many things. I'm not, I'm not decrying it 100%, but it has also taken a lot of uh, work away from our part of the world and dist distributed it elsewhere. And people here need work. And people are made happy by work. Like Francis Hutchison was, had the chair of moral philosophy at Glasgow University in the 1730s and onwards. He was part of the Scottish Enlightenment. And he, he lectured that, that work brought happiness. It, it, that by, by working hard to make your own life better and other people's lives better, that the collateral benefit of that was happiness. You made yourself happy, you made other people happy. One of his students was John Witherspoon, who, who, who emigrated to North America uh, and became the, the second president of what is now Princeton University. Mm. And he was one of the signatories of the American Declaration of Independence, which has in it the pursuit of happiness. And it comes from Hutchison teaching that work, working hard to make the world a better place, working hard to make the world a better place for other people and not just yourself, is the route to happiness. And look at the world that we have at the moment. You know, so many people were, were nudging towards concepts like universal basic income, where people uh, would be at home receiving a certain amount of money, but not working. And it, it's important to give people the wherewithal to survive. Of course it is. But, but people are made happy by work. You know, work is a, is a wonderful thing. It has been the, uh, working creatively and constructively and contributing in that way has made our communities and we need to bring work back into the communities. And for so many people, for so many uh, young men and women, it's the work of the hands and it's those skills mm. which are every bit as, as valid and important and glorious in many ways as anything that you might achieve through a university degree. Well, indeed, and you might you even say, you might even say as well that, uh, that the, the production of something tangible which you get at the end of, of whether it's a day's work or a month's work or a year's work. You know, I once lived on the Clyde uh, down in Glasgow Harbour and I was opposite the BAE shipyards, which I know are much smaller than they used to be. But they were making, they were building, I think, an aircraft carrier or something like that, which was eventually launched into the Clyde. And, and I would walk down with my, my children, who were very small in those days, down the, the side of the river and watch as it got bigger every single day until eventually they did launch it into the river. And we all stood and watched them launching it into the river because it was a great achievement. And I felt part of it, even though I had done absolutely nothing at all uh, to, to create that. And I think you're right, because I think the problem, for example, that we have in, in London is that we have uh, an entire class of people in London who make nothing. They work but they don't create anything. They just kind of go to an office, they sign a couple of emails, um, they send uh, some, some social media out, 
but they don't actually create anything. And I think that's a problem. There's nothing like being part of a creative process. And, you know, some people work in a solitary way, uh, you know, artists or novelists or, or, mm. and, and can create something. But even at that, they still need, you still need input from others in order to get the work out there. But for so many people, being a contributory part of an enterprise like like a ship and i'm not saying of course i'm not i'm not i'm using that only to illustrate a point i'm not saying we need we necessarily need to go back into the past you know maybe maybe the future lies in in other industries but but there, there is no doubting that that as you describe that that spiritual uplift that used to come for people knowing that they were part of making something grander and bigger than they would ever be on their own you know, my mum and dad, our family legend is that my mum and dad were both babies in prams on opposite sides of the Clyde. But they were about one year old and their, 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 their two families brought them to the to the riverside to watch the, the launch of the Queen Mary, right. which was one of the, the ships that came out of John Brown's, uh, you know, before the Mary and the Lizzie were built in, the, on the, in, in John Brown's and then the QE2, Q4. Uh, but they were on the riverside and amongst throngs of thousands and thousands of people, the whole communities of you know, of Renfrew and Glasgow would, co would converge on the Clyde to watch this creation that was their own. You know, this this mm. this creation that they had watched grow and rise above the tenements, and it brought people together. And people knew that they, that their children could go in and be and be and be given meaningful employment. And to know that in life that there was a ship on the ocean, a great liner or a great a warship that was out there, and you had been part of the creative process and the building process. That does that lifts people up, you know. There's a great theory that, it, that coming together to work on shared endeavor is part of what shaped, raised up the human race. You know, it, it's unique to our species these creative endeavors, or it's almost unique in the way that we do it, and it makes us it makes us feel that we matter, and the necessity to feel that we matter. There's so much unhappiness and depression out there in the world. And a lot of it will have to do with people either feeling that what they're doing doesn't matter or that they don't have anything meaningful to do at all. And just encouraging everyone to go to university for three or four years and acquire a degree is not the solution to the problem. Mm. It, it's part, every, every civilized society needs to have universities where, where a certain percentage of the population follow that path. But everyone needs to be part of something that lifts them up. And so communities should be around these great endeavours, these great shared enterprises, where there is a contribution to be made by everyone from mm. highest to lowest. Absolutely and, right. And, I mean, I, I, have to, I have to say that, you know, I mean, I, I love what I do now, but when I was working in newspapers, there was a very tangible asset at the end of your working day. Every morning you could go into a, a news agent and you could see the newspaper that you'd bought, uh, that, that you'd made. And basically everyone who was a part of that process, whether they be uh, messengers, whether they be uh, the, the people on the front desk of the building, whether they have been people who are taking pictures or sub-editors or people writing, everybody had a kind of a collective ownership of that newspaper and they believed in it and they loved it and they wanted to be part of it uh, and anything that they could do. And, and that was, that was a great experience for me. And Boris Johnson yesterday, Neil talks about this new deal. I mean, you mentioned Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he was invoking the spirit of FDR talking about the new deal for Britain and, and how we are the leaders in lots of different industries now. And he's right to say that, but, but how do we get from, from, uh, from what, what you're describing uh, to where we want to be? How, how do you think we can get, young people to kind of buy into learning a trade and becoming part of something? 
our our local school, my 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 two eldest kids go to Stirling High School here, and I know from talking to them that that, that the school does talk about and encourage the the the, the apprenticeship, the traineeship uh, philosophy. So it is there, uh, which is a wonderful thing. And it's I think in answer to your question, I think it's so important to uh, to to reinvest with dignity, to, to rehabilitate the the idea of working. With a, in a trade and becoming skilled, and what a wonderful word! You know, people used to talk about being skilled. That's a that's a fantastic expression. Yes. Intelligence, have the hands that can do things. And if everyone just thinks that the only way in which you can become uh, that you can raise yourself up is is through a university degree, then that's that's not enough. You also have to remind people you're not making anything up. It's not an untruth. You're not selling people snake oil. Being trained and having skills with your hand, being able to express outside of your imagination, br- to bring something to, to fruition, is, a, is an aspiration almost like no other. And so I think it starts very early on with, with reminding people that having a trade, having a skill, being time served is a, is a wonderful, uplifting notion. And it also, the second part of the answer to your question would be clearly because of, as I mentioned, the globalization that has scattered so much, so many jobs out into the wider world. We, we need to bring them back. And so we need governments and other people to tell us what are the emergent industries uh, that, that, that people could be uh, pulled into and become a part of. So that you'd want, I would, I would look forward to a time when people weren't just uh, being excited about the idea of, of getting to university, but that people would be thrilled and excited about the opportunity to get into you know building cars building building ships making steel creating all of the 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 scaffolding that holds up our civilization and it's it makes us better people you know busy people you know there's all these adages about you know if you've got something you need done you give it to the busiest person in the room (laughs) you know the most industrious the most conscientious people are the people that you want to be standing closest to you know, my father-in-law was a, he trained he trained as a colliery engineer. He was in the pits to begin with, and then he, he became a rotating machinery engineer and he worked in the oil industry. And a, a more physically clever human being you've never seen in your life than my father-in-law. You know, he's one of these guys that could be taken out into the, the African desert to, to a, a tank that was abandoned after the Second World War, and with a, you know, with a bit of Fix with it. a bit of time, right, Josie, could get it going again. Right. He's one of those, and I stand beside him with my university degree at my university degree I watch him do things and the cleverness the intelligence that is made manifest by what he is able to do with his hands makes me want to curl up into a ball <laughs> I, feel so, I feel so lesser beside what he is able to do yes and in many ways I would want for my children just as I would want them to go and maybe excel with a, an English degree or, a, or or to become a doctor I would be just as thrilled at least as thrilled if one of them in 20 years time, if I was able to stand beside them and watch them do something with their hands. Yes. Well, it's interesting because my, my, my two older children are very different. My, my daughter works in the, in the media. She's currently living in Dubai, working for an American TV company. My son lives in California and had no interest in uh, higher education, but he can fix a car. Now, you know, um, 
which one of those two people is more useful to me when I see him? He is, in a way. And I don't mean that in any way, you know, because I don't have to choose between them. But, you know, I'm very, very proud of the fact that he has kind of eschewed the modern idea of going to university and getting some kind of degree. And he's actually more of a kind of artisan. Um, and he loves it. And he's actually very happy with his life. You know, he doesn't feel stress. He doesn't really want for anything. He doesn't, uh, he, he's, he, he lives on a relatively small amount of money. And he's very happy. You, well, happiness, heavens above. I mean, happiness is is, is elusive. P people have, the, I think, have been given over the last number of years the wrong idea about what happiness actually is. Uh, you know, but, but ha happiness is not made of money, as we know. But you you mentioned um, that you trained as a and worked a, a journalist, a reporter. Now, I did. I got my degree, but then I had an archaeology degree, which, let me tell you, is is not in, instantly applicable to getting a lot of jobs. <laughs> and I, I worked as an archaeologist for a couple of years, and then I realised that. I wasn't, I wasn't getting, I wasn't moving forward. And so I retrained. I joined a local paper, the Dumfrieshire Newspapers Group down right. in Annan, and I was given a three-year indenture. God right. bless the editor that gave me that, that opportunity. And I was trained on the job. I was sent away to Napier College, as it was then, for about six weeks, where we did the, you know, some of the technical training. But I learned on the job. Uh, and the skills that I acquired, shorthand and typing, uh, the, the necessity to communicate with people, to, to very quickly understand a situation and turn it into a few hundred words of copy that would, that would make sense to any interested reader. I can say with my hand on my heart that that, that skill that I acquired there in that building has served me much better than my university degree. You know, I went and, on and, isn't it, and isn't it interesting, Neil, as well, that when you did that, Journalism was considered to be a trade. A lot of people ask the question to me now, what has gone wrong with the media? Uh, to which I now answer, it's being run by people who went to public school. It's being run by people who never really learned journalism as a trade. They basically are political kind of apparatchiks. They're interested only in the sound of their own voice, particularly in television. Um, and when you were learning the trade of journalism, it was a very humble um, and a very basic training that you went through. And the other people, other the other cub reporters, as we were called, I, I was the only one that had had a, a that had come out of a university at all. That was almost like coincidental in a way. Yeah. The other people came in from school and they were learning on the job. Right. And as you mentioned, uh, the, the fact that you would come, we we were a weekly paper with three weekly papers that we published, and at the end of the when the when the papers were on edition, it was so exciting to go down to the to the to the to the, to the ground floor uh, where the paper was being physically put together. And it was being put together by, by by men and women who had skills that are lost now. You know, they were actually they were actually assembling it in in old print form. Yeah. And to go down into that environment and see your story, which you had written on a screen, rendered into type, and to be assembled onto a page, maybe with your byline on it, and then to see the presses go and the paper to be produced, and you were and then suddenly you had a, a finished object that you knew was going to go. And it was our papers. It was small circulation, but it was dearly loved. Mm. The papers were dearly loved by the. But by the local community, and knowing that you had, been, and so there were photographers, there were the typesetters, there were the printers, uh, there were the people in the front desk taking the inquiries, putting the calls through. There were the editors, the subs. There was a whole team of people, without any one of whom the, the, the finished product simply wouldn't have appeared. And we regarded it as a trade. It was very much the trade yes. of journalism because ultimately you were making something. There was a product that mm. everybody had in mind. And some of it was, you know, to watch the guys that assembled the the, 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 the print and who made the pages come together was was a thrill. Yeah. It was an absolute thrill to watch it because, you know, they were so deft and they were so creative in what they were doing.
doing. And then altogether, we could share in the great piles of papers that went out to be sent out to the news agents. And you thought, yes, that week has has achieved something. We've yeah. done it again. Absolutely right. I mean, my father trained um, as an artist at Glasgow School of Art. Um, but he also was a lithographer. Um, he was a calligrapher. He could actually write with his hand, with his free hand, in Times Roman. And he could draw maps, which were, you know, drawn by hand, which everything everybody could now do on an iMac. But, you know, it was an incredible gift that he had. Um, and that, that's all been lost now, hasn't it? I think there's something that people that people have, 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 over, have begun to, or they have overlooked. I mentioned that, you know, your intelligence is not just in your brain. It's distributed through your body via your, your spinal column. It's, it's there in your, it, it, some of it is there in your hands. And when you take the raw material of a person, and many people have that potential, but you channel their ability. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a the old word meek that we have, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. And the people in our civilization, I think of meek as meaning that you're soft and gentle and a bit, and a bit weak. But meek comes from uh, a, a Greek word that means when you take a wild horse out of the wild and you train it to become something powerful that can be used in a war, something that will fearlessly do whatever its rider requires of it and will, and will predict his thought or her thought and will do and will act accordingly. That, once you have a horse that's like that, it's meek. And it means that all of its powerful potential has been canalized and channeled and focused to a, a lethal point with which you can achieve so much. And we should celebrate the fact that, that people can be taken and that where some people's intelligence is, is cerebral, I suppose, maybe you might want to say for want of a better work, other people, the potential that they have will be made manifest by the skills of their bodies, the skills of their hands. And, to, and the, the meaning that comes into a person's life, when that that they have within them, that contribution that they have to give, when it is made manifest, when it is brought out by training, by training and practice and hard work, it's, it's nothing less than wonderful to see mm. And to think that there might be generations of people who have and had that potential and it wasn't brought out, that all of that reservoir of potential to make the world a better place has been left without being drawn out. We, we need to encourage people to think that there are so many ways of making that contribution of being useful. Yeah. And if you find that you've reached a point in your life where you are useful, to yourself, to your family, to your community. That's happiness. That's where happiness comes from. Money's a part of it and job security's a part of it. But knowing that that which you had to give has been brought out. And most people need help to bring out from within them that which they have to give. Mm. And once that is done for people, then you have elevated the species. It's wonderful. Yes, I think that's right. And we're very near the end of our conversation here, but I think this has given me an idea for what we talk about next week, Neil, because I think what you're saying um, is that we need to get better in our education system at spotting that kind of thing. But also, we need to address the fact that there's millions probably of people in this country who are born, um, who live for a reasonably long period of time and who die without ever really having had the knowledge that they were useful and without ever really knowing what they could have done uh, or who could have listened to what they had to say. And I think if we can get better at that, then we can get better at, at an awful lot. What a, what a tragedy it is to have unrealised potential. And almost everyone, you can't be 100% about anything, but almost everyone has a contribution that they have to give. 
and it should be the it must be the obligation of our society to identify that and to draw it out and to focus it so that people come to the end of their lives knowing that they were of use. Yes, I think absolutely. What a great uh, thing to end on. Neil, thank you very much as ever. Illuminating, fascinating, uh, thought-provoking, uh, everything you need in a radio show. Uh, that's just me. Neil's quite good as well. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I'm joined, I'm delighted to say, uh, by guest Matthew Syed, Sunday Times columnist, author uh, of a book called Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking. Welcome, Matthew. Well, it's to, lovely uh, to be in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Does, it, does this mean that the common law does not apply in this studio? Well, as you know, laws do not apply anymore anyway, because basically every law that the government has made has been completely ignored. So you can do whatever you like out on the streets and also in here. The only thing we ask for you to be uh, is intelligent and warm and as witty and, as you and, can and be. And interesting. Now, and I'm, interesting. I'm worried I might not meet that bar. Particularly, <laughs> I must say, after your last guest, I was in the... I suppose the green room. The green area, it. yes. And I have read his uh, book on the ancient British mm. history, um, and it's a wonderful read about smelting in the Bronze Age and the um, and the and the coastal degradation and all sorts of other things. And, and it gives you a real kind of comprehensive overview yeah. of how this nation became well, you, this nation. You know, you told me a fascinating story because we, we sort of, I mean, I knew Neil Oliver obviously from Coast, and, and I, but I, what I didn't know was that he's a sort of modern day philosopher. Um, oh, and I he didn't has know these, that. He has these incredible sort of thought processes and he talked to us about, say for example, the tin mines of, uh, of Cornwall. Right. And we got into the whole conversation about the sword and the stone. And there was a time when you made basically metal by pouring it into um, a sort of a tin um, cask, if you like. Um, and copper was made that way, and that was how Cornwall became part of this whole kind of methodology of making metal. And well, he said I mean, that if you had seen somebody sticking something into a stone, which actually was making a sword, and then you pulled the sword out, yeah. you could see how someone would think that was magical. Well, absolutely. And some of the technologies, I, I mean, I can't remember the precise nuances of the book, but there was something called the beaker culture that yeah. came in. He, he writes very lyrically about the sword in the stone phenomenon. Mm. But one of the things that's interesting about um, Britain is that we were quite innovative through our history. And obviously, um, I think this culminated in the Industrial Revolution. This is much later in yeah. the 18th and 19th centuries. But that's the most significant single economic event the world has ever known. Mm. Economic growth was basically 0.01 of right. 1% for many thousands of years. After the Industrial Revolution, we have quadrupled, I think we quadrupled global GDP within 20 or 30 years. Right. That happened in the British Midlands mm. before, as it were, trundling out across Europe. Yes. And I think that, that, that psycho the, the kind of culture we had back then of trialling and entrepreneurship, James Watt and Thomas Newcomen, I'd like to see more of that today. I well, I mean, thing. we'll come back to Boris Johnson's speech yesterday because he's kind of trying to say that perhaps not as well as he could have said it. I mean, slightly clumsily and without very much detail, I think we probably all agreed yesterday. But but let's start, first of all, though, with your column uh, this weekend in the Sunday Times about statues and about the whole kind of... Because it's interesting, because we go back to that same period, I suppose, when an awful lot of these statues were put up. And I'm thankful that we seem to have passed the kind of slightly peak madness stage where people were just running around Britain trying to find statues to pull down. <laughs> yeah. That seems to have passed. I mean, well, they... well, it's funny you should say that. So one of the, the, the reason I wrote that column in the Sunday Times is I live in Richmond in right. southwest London, about 80 yards from Richmond Bridge. And right by Richmond Bridge, there is a bust of Bernardo O'Higgins, okay. who is not terribly well known. No. 
but he was a liberator of Chile who lived in Richmond. Okay, um, it's a great name. It's a great, it's a great name. And I was sat on the bench next to it, having a, a, a cup of tea. And three um, teenage, but late teenage boys came and had a look at the inscription: mm. Bernardo O'Higgins, liberator of Chile lived in Richmond sometime in the 19th century. And one of them said, was he a slaver? Did he have anything to do with slavery? And another said, well, I don't know. And then the third said, well, they were all pretty dodgy back then. This statue should come down. (laughs) And and it was at that point I realised... It's tragic, uh, isn't it? What what has happened, I think, is that a a movement with very good aspirations, that people should progress in life on the basis of their character, Mm. their ability, their work ethic, and not their skin pigmentation, is a powerful one. And I think we do want to try and create a genuinely meritocratic society where people have the opportunity to excel. And I don't think we're quite there yet. No. Um, And I think if if, if anything comes from this Black Lives Matter phenomenon, because that's what it is, I think, then that obviously will be a good thing. If that that changes and we do get closer to that um, sort of peak uh, and that that, that promise, then then great. But I, like you, I'm, I'm slightly puzzled. You write in the piece that you're not quite sure what their aims are exactly. Because I actually had a guy called Gary McFarlane on, uh, who's part of their organisation here in the UK. Um, and I, I said to him, you know, at what point do you stop marching? When Because at what point do you realise that you've achieved whatever it is that you want to achieve? And he said, well, we'll never stop. We will never stop. Mm. And, and I'm like, well, OK, but what are you trying to achieve? And he couldn't yeah. really answer. Well, what, the way I end that column is when you think about, for example, somebody denied a promotion because of the colour of their skin or somebody who doesn't get a job interview or somebody living without hope in a, in a tower block, you know, to what extent are their lives materially improved by deleting a scene from Faulty Towers mm. uh, circa 1978? Yeah. And if the answer is not at all, yeah. then the energy, the, the righteous energy should be directed towards those uh, substantive changes to the law, Uh, to institutional structure that can make a difference. Otherwise, it just becomes a kind of symbolism. Exactly. Uh, And I don't like that at all. And I I, I think it would be a great waste and squandering of this this great energy that uh, has built up. Um, And and I think that would be a a, a tremendous uh, opportunity missed. Yes. But I think, unfortunately and tragically, the the bulk of of, of any movement uh, is made up of followers rather than leaders. And I think the people who follow are rather like those three teenagers that you heard talking about a statue which they knew nothing about. And you would have thought in this day and age that one of them would have gotten their iPhone and just Googled him Mm. to see who he was. Because, I mean, that is actually one of the easiest things that you can now do. When, for example, Tower Hamlets Council moved... Um, some guy called Milligan from East India Dock. I said, well, surely he's there. Yes, he was uh, connected to the slave trade. He had some kind of plantation in Jamaica. But he also created um, Docklands, effectively. And that's why there was a statue to him. I'd never heard of him. Mm. You know, I didn't know who he was. Mm. Um, I don't know why he was there, but I assume he was significant. So therefore, you have a statue built to you at that time because you're significant. And why get rid of that when actually you can look at it, learn from it, find out what it was that he did, find out what it was that you didn't like that he did, and then move on. And one of the things about the really successful political movements is they tend to mobilise what you might call moderate opinion. Mm. I mean, that was Martin Luther King's genius in the 1960s, those peaceful protests, the overreaction Mm. of some of the police forces in the South, the dawning realisation that even in the metropolitan cities of the North there had been terrible discrimination in housing, in employment... Mm. 
uh, very easy to identify once you put your finger on it. That began to mobilise uh, public opinion. I, I also think that, uh, I mean, Lin Lyndon Johnson um, went much further than I think Congress would have imagined possible, even a year earlier when he mm. signed into law the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and then, of course, the 1965 Voting Rights Acts. And that was because he could see that the Democratic Party needed that middle opinion. And I worry that this movement is beginning to alienate that opinion. Yes. I'll tell you one of the other things. You, you'll, you'll have seen this, is that, obviously, the demographic on Twitter is not representative. No of the wider population. It's tempting and how they to think. think that it is. It's very tempting. Yeah. This happens in politics. It happens in sports journalism yeah. a lot, by the way, where yeah. people go and have a look on Twitter and what people are... Th and then you begin to think, well, I'll write a column in line with what Twitter... But Twitter, if you... if you, I often try and think of it this way, you know, it's like the amygdala, you know, oh. that part of the brain mm. that slightly overreacts yes. to stuff. Right. Um, you know, the, the one that... The, the fight, flight, freeze response. Yes. Um, and I think Twitter's like the nation's amygdala, and it's much better to take a step back and use the prefrontal cortex. Right, which, of uh, course, to... is complete anathema to Twitter, because that's not what you're supposed <laughs> no, to do. Exactly. You're supposed to react immediately <laughs> well, uh, and with some vigour, uh, and preferably with a lot of anger. Well, and, and, I mean, just to use a few examples from sports, so one of the things that I've found very interesting is there will be a, an allegation against a particular public figure. Mm. So it might be Sam Allardyce, right. back page of the front page of the Telegraph. He has been promising to go and do speeches yes. in the Middle East in, in defiance of his contract. Right. Twitter immediately will say, resign, yeah. be, be sacked, get right. rid of this. Well, that's crook. the only thing they know what and to the, do. And right. then, of course, you say, well, what about due process? Right. What about this person's right of reply? What about the possibility that these are edited highlights? Yeah, well, how about you actually newspaper? read the story in full in before full. you react to well, it? Well, quite. The same happened with Lord Treesman right. and David Moyes mm. um, and, and fast-forwarding to Mark Sampson. Yeah. Um, and just asking Twitter to take a step back. In each of these cases, people have complained at me personally that because I defended Mark Sampson, who had been accused of racism, I hate racism, mm. but I also think that he has an should have an opportunity to defend his name with an independent right. tribunal, not mob rule. Right. Well, you're defending a racist. But of also course you're not defending a racist. Yeah. You're, you're, you're defending due process. Right. But also there's this other ridiculous kind of comparison um, business that seems to go on in Twitter all the time where they say, well, if you think that, what about this? <laughs> well, why, you know, why do you not yeah. say to condemn this man if you're condemning this guy? Or if you're allowing this man off what he did, why are you condemning the other guy that you wrote about last week? You know, there seems to be no logic to it at all. Yeah, and, yeah. and I mean, I don't think the answer is to shut down Twitter or no. to tell people not to use social media. Um, because it's a fascinating kind of ad addition to me anyway, to what we do in the media. You know, I don't think I'd want to be on it if I wasn't in the media because it would be just too ridiculous. But, you know, it is remarkable how... We have given opinion to people who, and I dare say this will not be welcomed by some of the people I'm listening to, uh, who are listening to us, um, who shouldn't actually have an opinion, you know, because they haven't thought about that opinion. And it's dangerous if you give an opinion without thinking about it. But what, what, should have, what one hoped would happen with, with Twitter is it would lead to a higher flow of information. Mm. So if you imagine 40 years ago, most people consumed the news through the BBC. Yeah which has a monolithic view of the world, or certainly did then, to a certain extent does now, and at most one newspaper. Yeah. So they really were not surrounded by opinions that contradicted their own worldview. One, one hoped that the internet would lead to a situation where people would be able to hear the views and perspectives of others and therefore come to more nuanced and complex views of their own. What I think has happened 
is it has metastasized into different echo chambers where people are prepared to retweet those with whom they have a tribal or ideological allegiance. Yes, and, and with whom they agree on everything. Right, and then instantly repudiate other people without actually looking at the evidence that the other person is seeking to corroborate their opinion. And so you get this, it's almost like the repelling of alternative views. And I think it would be uh, it would be a really progressive thing if uh, p- people on Twitter were prepared to give those with whom they mm. disagree the benefit of the doubt, to, to read what they're saying, look at the evidence of what they're saying, and who knows, yeah. come to some kind of a rapprochement with them. Absolutely. And we're going to take a little break in a moment, but I'll just tell you this little story. I was in newspapers for a long time before I went to radio, and, and when, I was, when I was in newspapers before social media, it was still more or less the main main sort of source of information that people got. And there was no um, internet. You couldn't check what was happening in Japan at three o'clock in the afternoon. And funnily enough, I, my 13-year-old son and I watched, this will make you laugh, Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House, which is an old Cary Grant movie, right, from the 40s. Yes. Right. Uh, and at one point, he uh, wakes up in the morning in his apartment in New York, and he goes to the front door in his dressing gown, uh, and he gets the newspaper. And I said to my son, I said, you know, um, at that moment, this is when he finds out what happened yesterday. And before that, he didn't know what happened yesterday. Yeah. And he looked at me like, he said, what? I said, well, you know, you can't imagine that that was the only means of yeah. finding out what was going on. Because even then, there wasn't really television. Um, and I think that we do have this overload now. Mm. Uh, and when I was in newspapers, we were kind of the filter. To see, to, and some people might have said, well, we were the wrong kind of filter. And, you, you know, why should I be the filter? Why should I be telling you what you need to know about? Mm. But that was our job. Mm. And now there is no filter. Mm. So nobody really knows. It takes us into fake news. It takes yeah. us into, yeah, you know, true. the wrong kind of news, that's true. the wrong kind of opinion. Yeah. And, it's, and it's very dangerous. It, yeah. And it, it's actually quite a deep problem. Mm. Because if you think about it, any even a scientist, we should know this more post-COVID, takes other scientists' outputs as inputs Mm. for their deliberation. In other words, information is underpinned by a very complicated social structure of trust. If you don't trust anybody, we can't check things from first principles, like like nuclear fission or or, um, macroeconomic policy. We, we, We trust people, we read what they say, and we take their outputs as inputs for what we think about the world. When that trust begins to break down, and I think we're in danger of that. Well, at the people moment. have never mistrusted the media more. I don't. Think. Right, but not just the media. I think there are there is now a certain mistrust of science mm. itself. Mm. Conspiracy theories are appearing much yeah. more yeah. on the internet than pre. I mean, we've always had a predisposition to buy into conspiracy theories as a species, but I think that's happening more and more. Mm. And I do think that. I mean, this is obviously a very big question, but repairing some level of trust within society is important not just for the media, not just important for democratic politics, but for science itself. Mm. Yes, I think that's right. We've been talking about sort of information and misinformation and talking of sport and linking all of that. I mean, it's interesting, is it not, to see the reaction of the Premier League? We're going to be watching Keir Starmer later on with uh, with Boris Johnson. So Keir Starmer, I think, has done everybody a favour by, by delineating... Um, the difference between Black Lives Matter as an organisation mm. and Black Lives Matter as a sort of a, a moment, as he described it. I thought mm. that was interesting because mm. it now means that you can say the moment may have passed. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the Premier League, who were very hasty in sort of embracing Black Lives Matter as an organisation, have also now had to distance themselves from it. And it does, does prove, does it not, that sport and politics really doesn't mix terribly well. I, I was worried when I looked at the Black Lives Matter UK yes. website and it talked about such things as dismantling capitalism. Yes. 
I mean, that sounded to me like an agenda that goes far beyond mm. the idea of racial equality. Well, exactly. one, one can talk about racial equality, about the dignity right. of all people, right. everyone being deserving a fair chance, mm. without talking about the destruction of capitalism, exactly. which, in my view, has been the engine of economic growth that has helped all races yes. and all societies. I mean, some more than others, obviously, and yeah. I'd like to see that more evenly distributed, but nevertheless a great engine for progress. So you're right to draw... I think Starmer's right to draw mm. a distinction oh, between so. these two. By the way, I think Starmer, for what it's worth... I, I stood for the Labour Party in 2001 at a Did general you? election um, against John Redwood in Wokingham, okay. the right. Vulcan. The Vulcan. I don't know how many people remember him. Yes. Um, well, he's still here. Uh, he's I mean, still he's still going. around. He's, he's still, still going. going. Well, he probably has an eternal life. I don't know what the Vulcan's <laughs> mortality is, but uh, uh, I was quite proud to stand for Labour in 2001, and I felt that it went... I thought Ed Miliband took it too far to the left. Yes. And then Corbyn crazily too far mm. to the left. And I think it's not impossible, for what it's worth, that Starmer, uh, by getting rid of Rebecca Long-Bailey, um, drawing this distinction between Black Lives Matter, the political organisation... Which and Black hasn't Lives... made him popular with the left in Labour I agree, party. but that absolutely shows that he's on track. Both of those things made him unpopular with the hard left mm. and very popular with the middle English voters he needs to construct a coalition yes. for the next election. I mean, I, I think he could be very good. And certainly very good for democracy. I think a proper challenger to Well, I think it's good that he's suddenly somebody now that can, can be... Uh, worth watching on Prime Minister's questions because it had become, when Theresa May was up against Jeremy Corbyn, we actually stopped covering it. It yeah, was that well. boring. You know, um, then when Corbyn was up against Boris, uh, we kind of knew what was happening. This, uh, I mean, I don't find Keir Starmer at all interesting. I, I, I disagree no, with those I, who yeah, say that he's this forensic, brilliant lawyer. Okay. I don't think he is because yeah, all I of agree. the stuff that he did say about Black Lives Matter this week, he should have known before he went on the knee uh, with Angela Rayner. Yeah, I think his um, method of, of speaking... Uh, the way he conducts himself in television and radio interviews, he's not the warmest he's really person. Not. And I think that does help in terms of political appeal. Mm. Um, he can perhaps work on that. Margaret Thatcher struggled desperately uh, after she got yeah. the Conservative leadership. I mean, I suppose from his point of view, there's no point in trying to out-charisma Boris that's Johnson. True. Yeah, that's true. Maybe the contrast is a sensible thing. Yeah. But one thing I'm not sure I've ever said this publicly, but one, one of the things that uh, alienated me from the Labour Party, I was sort of seeking selection sometime after 2010... And I was asked if I had a second home. Do you remember there was all yeah. that stuff about second homes? Well, I, I, I ought to say, I went to a comprehensive school right. and, and you know, I hope I've worked pretty hard. I was a ping-pong player before going You were into, quite a good ping-pong player, to be fair. I a bad ping-pong player. You know, prefer think, to call it you, table tennis, I think you but might, nevertheless. I think, I think you might have... Uh, <laughs> do you know, I used to be quite good at it. I, I shouldn't well, say yeah, it to no, you. Well. I used to play with a Chinese pen grip and, yeah, occasionally, pen grip and occasionally I'd flip it over and surprise people with a regular backhand. Well, that's very difficult to do. It Although you're a, you're a single handicapper golfer. Oh, well, well true. look, I, I was talking about my sport. Sorry. There. We, we sort of transition. <laughs> but uh, um, so I actually, you know, had invested the money that I had made, and I was very proud of having done so. And why in, not? Pro in property. Yes. So I mentioned that I had not just a second property, but more than that. And I was told, well, you better keep that quiet because you will never win a selection, that's a ridiculous. parliamentary selection for the Labour Party. And I got home and I told my wife who also went to a comprehensive school, worked very hard, went to Oxford and, and has been successful. We think that that should be, I think that should be celebrated. Sure. We should be giving other people opportunities to go on that path. I mean, my, I should say my parents were probably the main reason for this, not me. Um, I was horrified mm. at the contempt that the party had for ambition, for success, for drive and aspiration. And I think that the acid test... For Starmer, if you look back at general elections, the one that is the, the, the politicians that win are those that connect 
their platform mm. with the idea of aspiration, self-reliance. Yeah. Those attributes that I think all people believe in. And I don't think he's there yet, but he's got a long way to go. And I think Boris Johnson um, has got quite a long way to go now as well in terms of returning to normal politics because, you know, we are coming out of the coronavirus. He is setting out a new plan and we'll see how that goes. Uh, tragically, we're at the end of. of How did of that our went far? I, well, this is what happened. We've happens. got a minute over. See, we were supposed to. We work on a different time level at the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. It's so interesting <laughs> that time flies. Yeah, so, listen, good. Matthew, please come in again. Um, we'd love to do it. Thank and, you and, for if you, me. and if you can't be bothered coming on the train, we'll zoom it. Uh, which we do an like awful you lot did with of the Neil time. Oliver, which was wonderful. Uh, well, exactly right. Listen, fantastic to hear from you. Matthew Side, Sunday Times columnist, author of uh, Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking, which is what we do here uh, as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, uh, it is that time. We've had the news. It's time for homeschooling. Uh, if you've been sitting at home for the last several weeks with your children, wondering how on earth you're going to teach them for every single day that they're supposed to be at school, uh, fear not because we're going to help you out today and we're going to be talking about taking care of your teeth. Now, this might not be considered an academic subject, but maybe it should be, because in this country, there are many children, I would say, who do not know how to clean their teeth. And I would say that I was one of them, because when I was growing up, um, not only did I inherit Scottish teeth, which is never a good thing from my parents, um, I never really learned very well how to clean them. And so we're going to talk now to Hannah Woolnow, who's chair of the British Dental Association's UK Council. Hannah, very good uh, afternoon to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, um, I tell no lies when I say that my teeth for a long time were really, really awful. I, I ended up living in America for a while. And I had to have a lot of root canal work, which was one, terribly expensive and two, quite painful. Um, and then eventually uh, I ended up getting implants, which is what I've got now, um, which are great. But I finally was taught by the people who put them in how to clean my teeth. So so tell us what sort of the common mistakes are. I, I try and encourage my own kids to clean their teeth and, and with varying sort of success yeah I mean I think the key thing to remember is that kids aren't always that dexterous they're not necessarily that good with the accuracy of brushing so we generally say up until the age of six even if kids are having a go themselves that it's worthwhile making sure there's an adult there to help so they if they are missing anywhere that that's then being picked up by the, the adult that's helping them and they can go around and get the other bits and this... the really important things sorry no go on go on I was going to say, the most important thing when you're brushing your own teeth is to watch yourself do it in the mirror. Mm. Um, that's a really helpful tip. Don't walk around the bathroom thinking about other things. Concentrate on what you're doing and watch yourself in the mirror to make sure that you don't miss any bits. Because it's quite easy, if you're not thinking about it, just to skip over a bit of your, of your mouth and, and miss some black. Right. And I've been given uh, a little prop here, which is um, apparently a bamboo yeah. toothbrush. Which Excellent, I'm, which, very good for the environment. Uh, very good for the environment, so that's why I'm not going to use it, um, because I have an electric one, which I find to be much better. Do you prefer electric toothbrushes? Does it matter? Um, electric toothbrushes are more efficient at removing plaque. So there's done lots of trials about how, you know, what's the best type of toothbrush. If you use a manual toothbrush well, you can clean your teeth really well, but using an electric toothbrush does make it a little bit easier to get in all the little nooks and crannies, especially the bits that are a bit harder to get to. So right up at the side at the back and down on the inside, down next to your tongue. Mm. It's a little bit, it's a bit harder to get around the corner. So if you've got an electric brush, that just makes it a bit easier to get them really clean. Right. And do you recommend to, to children in particular, but maybe to adults as well, a, a sort of a time period that you should spend? You could put a stopwatch on yourself or, you know, put a little stopwatch on your phone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so two minutes is the sort of minimum time that you'd want to brush your teeth properly. 
Right. So a lot of electric toothbrushes will have a timer on them. So it beeps after two minutes. So you don't stop until it beeps. So then you know that you spent enough time doing it. Mm. Um, if you don't have an electric toothbrush, you can use any timer. Um, you can get little egg timers at the pharmacy that do two minutes, um, specifically for toothbrushes. Or you can use any timer that you've got. So if you've got a smartphone, something like that, you can put a two-minute timer on that. Yes. And if you break it into 30-second intervals and break your mouth into four and spend... 30 seconds doing top on one side and then when it beeps do 30 seconds doing top on the other side and then work your way around and again that's another way of making sure that you don't miss anywhere right so breaking your mouth up into sections while you're brushing okay and would you put new bits of toothpaste on each uh, section um no and i think the key thing with the toothpaste is you want to make sure it gets everywhere so maybe when you put your toothbrush put the toothpaste on the toothbrush just push it down a bit so it goes into the bristles and it doesn't just fall off as a big lump into the sink yeah um, so push it down into the bristles and then maybe before you start your brushing proper, just smear it around everywhere. So you've got it on all your teeth and then start brushing so you don't end up with just one really clean bit and the rest of them have had no toothpaste. Right. The toothpaste generally gets quite foamy, so it will fill your mouth anyway while you're brushing. Um, and then the key thing with the toothpaste is when you spit it out, don't rinse your mouth. You want to leave some of that really good toothpaste on your teeth. So the, the ingredients in the toothpaste that make your teeth stronger, so that's the fluoride in the toothpaste, and carry on soaking in and uh, strengthening your teeth after you brush them. Oh, that's good to know, because I haven't heard that. Because um, the next question I was going to ask you was about mouthwash, because uh, some of the dentists I've spoken to say that some mouthwashes are better than others, uh, and particularly uh, the ones without sort of... Uh, uh, some, of them, some, some of them actually discolour your teeth if you use them too much. Yeah, so um, mouthwash, we generally, there's a couple of different mouthwashes which are almost like a, a, an additional medical use. So if you've got severe gum disease and things like that, then you might use some mouthwash for a particular purpose. The chemicals, the ingredients in the mouthwash are often very similar to the ingredients in the toothpaste. So unless you've been told by your dentist to use a mouthwash for a specific purpose, Often it's as good just to spit out the excess toothpaste and leave that on there rather than then washing it off with some mouthwash, mm. which often has the same ingredients. So you're effectively washing off one thing with another that's doing the same job. Right. If your dentist has told you that you need to use a specific mouthwash for a specific reason, then that could be, as I say, if you've got a gum infection that needs specific chemicals that aren't in your regular toothpaste, then do follow your dentist's instructions. Yes. And is it always a problem uh, if, for example, you see a little bit of blood, if there is some blood coming from your gums? Yeah, so bleeding gums indicate that your gum health isn't very good. So it means that you're leaving the plaque bacteria behind and it's irritating your gums. So your brushing isn't getting off everything. You leave that there. It's like leaving dirt in a wound. So if you cut your finger and you didn't get it really clean, it can't heal up and you get infection there and it gets sore and, and will bleed. So it's the same with your gums. If you're not getting them clean enough, they're just a little bit irritated all the time. And then when you do brush them, they bleed. A lot of people think when there's bleeding and they're brushing that they're hurting themselves and they stop brushing. Now that's the worst thing you can do because the only way to make your gums healthier is to brush them more. So not harder, really really gently and really really thoroughly and if you do that twice a day every day really well after a week or two there shouldn't be any bleeding left because the gums will be healthier as i said it's like cleaning out that wound first few days it's really sore and it might bleed but over time because it's nice and clean the body can then heal it and it gets better 
Okay. And how long would you say you should use a toothbrush for? I mean, like if I did use one of these uh, rather than the electric one, because with the electric one, I tend to change the head about once a month. Um, how often would you would you change a regular toothbrush? I mean, you wouldn't want to leave it more than three months um, because they do start to, to break down. So it depends on how hard you use your toothbrush. You shouldn't be one of these people, ideally, that flattens all the toothbrush bristles. Um, if you're somebody that, that after three months their toothbrush looks like it's been run over, uh, you're brushing too hard. So be more gentle with your toothbrushing. Um, so I mean, ideally you want to change it three monthly max. Make sure you keep it nice and clean. Yeah. Um, there are some devices that you can use for cleaning toothbrushes, like UV lights and things like that. Some people even put them in the dishwasher. You need to be careful that you don't melt it. Um, but you can clean them in between, or you can leave them in some mouthwash if you're worried about it being clean enough. But I would say three months um, between changing the toothbrush bristles or if it starts to look like it's deteriorating. So as I say, if it does look like yeah. it's been over by a truck. Okay. And finally, one of the things that I found very helpful um, when I sort of learned properly how to look after them was a water pick, which I've now got as well, um, which is like a sort of a jet stream of water that you can fire around your mouth a couple of times a day, um, which really does help to kind of keep it fresh, I, I find. Yeah, so um, ideally everybody should be cleaning between their teeth every day as well as brushing them. So that's using floss or interdental brushes, things like that, between the teeth, and that gets yeah. out bits of food and things that are stuck in place. The other thing you can use is a water pick, which basically does the same job, but rather than putting something physically between the teeth, it sprays a jet of water which pushes the food and the plaque and things out from between the teeth. Um, so you need to be using something once you've got lots of adult teeth Baby teeth is a little bit trickier to get between them because they're quite small. Um, so brushing normally is okay, just brushing for baby teeth. Once you start to get lots of adult teeth, you want to be brushing and cleaning in between them as well. Right. So floss, incidental brushes, or a water pick. Now, final question. You're the chair of the British Dental Association. I know there are some families, um, in particularly sort of busy parts of the country, who are finding it quite difficult to find a dentist, uh, certainly an NHS dentist. Um, have they got the right to a dentist? Because it's always been a bit unclear to me whether you actually can insist that you are uh, allowed onto a dental list. So dental practices, it's a tricky situation because dental practices are small independent businesses. They're not like dental, they're not like hospitals or you know, some GPs practices and things get, you know, public funding yeah. in addition to, to their own business. Dental practices are run slightly differently like that. So they will have a limited contract. So they will be told every year you can provide this much dentistry. Now, once you've seen that many patients and you've done that much dentistry, you won't get paid to do any more. Hmm. So it, it is tricky. You know, in an ideal world, the government would be funding enough dental practices to see every single person in the population. Unfortunately, at the moment, they are not doing that. Right. There are certain areas of the country where there is a real access issue. People are really struggling to find a dentist. And in some areas of the country, it's absolutely fine. And they're able to find a dentist really easily by Googling, looking on NHS Choices website. You know, places like that will have information about where you can find a, a dentist. Um, but there are hotspots in the country where it's really, really hard. And it's just because they're either difficult to recruit to, so the dental practices struggle to get dentists work there to see the patients or there's simply not enough funding in the area to be able to, to treat all the patients that want to be seen on the NHS 
it's a, it's a tricky situation. Sure. Hannah, thank you very much indeed. Hannah Woolnow, Chair of the British Dental Association. Now you know how to clean your teeth. I expect you to do so uh, with alacrity. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.